When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. And today I have a co-host. I'm Tamara Fernando. I'm an assistant professor in history at Stony Brook University. Welcome, Tamara. And with us today is Professor Stefan uh, Helmreich, who is a professor of anthropology at MIT and the author of Sounding the Limits of Life, Essays in the Anthropology of Biology and Beyond, Alien Ocean, Anthropological Voyages and Microbial Seas, and Silicon Second Nature Culturing Artificial Life in a Digital World. And today's book, however, is A Book of Waves, just recently published by Duke University Press in 2023. Welcome, Dr. Stephen, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your book. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. Uh, can you first uh, start us off by saying a few words about yourself? That is uh, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field. And we ask this uh, of all of our authors, but more so in this case, since your own experience of reading the waves filters into how you conceived of this project. Sure. Well, let's see. Um, I'm an anthropologist of science, and I study the ways that scientists make knowledge about mostly the natural world, and I've been interested in oceanographers in the last over a decade. And I came to that interest um, in part biographically from growing up on the United States East Coast and then the West Coast and spending a lot of time in and around the Atlantic Ocean and then the Pacific Ocean. Um, in my young adulthood, I became fascinated by the sport of surfing, um, but also in the idea of what lay beyond the horizon of the ocean, um, which then fed into an interest in cultural understandings of ocean life and um, territory and the, the, the ways that uh, social and political and economic forces format uh, what we take the ocean to be and, and who the we is that's doing that taking in the first place, whether that's, you know, seafarers, surfers, um, um, shipping companies, insurance companies, uh, militaries, uh, and et cetera. 
So very quickly, my sense of the ocean, especially as I started to study anthropology, became populated by uh, questions to do with, um, with, with culture, politics, and power. Thank you for that. Uh, could you please elaborate on how you conceptualize uh, ocean waves as forms of media in your book? Uh, you explain how a seascape too might be a book with waves as its pages. Uh, what do you mean by that? What crucial messages do ocean waves convey about our planet? That's a great question. Yeah, I think in doing the work toward uh, a book of waves, which involved interviewing oceanographers and also spending time with them as an anthropologist doing field work alongside them on their research vessels or in their laboratories, um, I came to understand their practice as one of interpretation of interpreting waves. And so much of wave science is about prediction, the prediction of waves that are to come. And insofar as it's about prediction, it's about futurity and about the kinds of loyalties that people have to particular horizons of expectations. So, you know, prediction can be done for the purposes of coastal uh, construction, for the purposes of national weather prediction for the purposes of various kinds of seafaring enterprises. And in thinking about how scientists interpret waves, or as they sometimes talked about it, read waves, I came to think of waves as kinds of media, that is, as sorts of channels for the, the relay of messages, really, that oceans that and, and waves come to be seen by scientists as carrying information about, for example, the storm systems out of which they ultimately arrive, or the um, the transformations in weather systems and climate systems that that shape what waves are. And then I guess as well, I was interested in how scientists use different um, media to map what waves are. Those media include cameras, um, both still cameras and movie cameras, um, these days computers, but also things like buoys and satellites. So there's a whole media scape that permits waves to come into legibility for the scientists who study them. And so I kind of took that very seriously to understand waves themselves as kinds of media and in fact, the ways that scientists understand waves is kind of imprinted by the media that they use to understand them. So a wave, you know, is, is a different kind of thing for scientists who use a three-dimensional tank of water to make a scale model. It's different for a scientist who uses a computer. It's different for scientists who use high-speed photography. Um, and those things then become read onto the kind of very nature of waves themselves. There's also a very thick um, mathematical uh, set of media that scientists use. Certainly the wave science is stocked with partial differential equations and all kinds of gnarly mathematical formalisms that really are a key medium through which scientists understand what waves are and do. Thank you, Stefan, that's wonderful. Um... One of the things that we were really struck by is the fact that you tell us the book was initially conceived of as a project that would follow one community closely, wave mm -hmm. scientists. Right. But 
we meet all kinds of waves in the book, waves in right. social theory, social mm -hmm. movements. Um, right. How can you tell us a little bit about how you followed waves beyond science um, as an anthropologist of science or somebody who writes books who fit fairly squarely within the history of science? Tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about the unruliness of um, all the other kinds of waves that come into the book. Well, I think pretty quickly, as one studies people who study ocean waves, one becomes aware not only of all of the observational media that they use to apprehend them, but also all of the metaphors and symbols that get pretty quickly relayed into their science and certainly visions of the ocean as, you know, either meditative you know, the kind of washing of waves as a kind of relaxation soundtrack or sublime or terrifying, all of those kinds of symbolic freights that come with waves then open up questions into where those symbolisms come from and how they're um, anchored, forgive the metaphor, in uh, other social domains. So for example, there's a chapter or a very brief chapter in the book about the genders of waves and thinking about waves as being understood through metaphors that would assign them masculine or feminine sex gender confirmations in folklore and or you know waves understood as kinds of quasi animate objects that are that are analogized to things like dolphins or horses and so that that particular uh, segment of the book about the, about the the genders of waves and anthropomorphizing waves sort of leads into this sort of bigger questions of how uh, social symbolisms contour what we take waves to be. And then you mentioned waves in social theory, and I became fascinated by the way that the idea of the wave of opinion or waves of immigration or um, waves of revolution, waves of protest, waves of insurrection sort of all get understood through idioms that are about trying to grapple with the, the, the difficulty of understanding how mass uh, movements can be, um, can be mapped and understood. And so there's another short chapter in the book that's very much about the history of the wave metaphor and social theory from uh, Emile Durkheim's notion of waves of suicide to um, uh, anthropologist uh, David Graeber's idea of waves of um, resistance following from the Arab Spring and the Occupy movements of the early 2010s. And a lot of it is about kind of this a lot of the use of the wave metaphors is, is, I think, indicative of a kind of struggle to understand how to st struggle to understand the relationship between what anthropologists call structure and agency, how um, how non-institutional social forms, social forms of social uh, effervescence, to use the Durkheim word, um, come come into being, and I guess a. And then I finished this book during the COVID-19 pandemic, which obviously we're still in, and um, became interested in the history of the pandemic wave, which originated kind of as a metaphor in the 
1800s, um, very much about British colonial medicine and public health and tracking the travel of disease to eventually become kind of a mathematical model being used to predict um, the unfolding of disease etiologies. Um, and so, yeah, the once you start, once you step in the waves, they sort of go everywhere, right? Um, and people use them as metaphors in lots and lots of different domains. Right. I really found that interesting. Uh, being a speaker of Arabic, I was thinking about the the history of, of uh, wave idioms and metaphors in Arabic language. And I came to realize, actually, they're quite recent in the 19th century. Mm. You don't okay. Classical work. So the, the European use of uh, language of waves uh, had a broader impact, I guess, uh, in the rest of the world through translation as well. Um, mm -hmm. Back to the ethnography and your ethnographic work with uh, ethnographers and coastal engineers across different countries, what significant contributions did you uncover about our understanding of waves? Um, how does this research enrich our knowledge of these natural phenomena? Well, I think one thing that becomes clear and became clear to me was something that may not be surprising to students of oceanography, which is that traditions of oceanography um, are very much tied to national narratives and national histories and national institutions. And so the history of wave science coming from, for example, the United States is very much uh, involved with the history of uh, naval research, particularly as it got going during World War II and then into the Cold War. And so a lot of the wave science that was done was um, aimed at kind of at military uh, um, deployments and usages. And in the United States, oceanography became physical, physical oceanography became very symbiotic with naval, naval kinds of imperatives so that the, the questions that oceanographers were being, were, were asking became very much aligned with those that the Navy was interested in. This is about the extension of American hydro-colonial power. Um, I also did field work in the Netherlands where waves are very much understood as kinds of enemies of, you know, the below sea level nation state. And the, the Dutch story about waves is one that's about domesticity, about keeping, uh, the, the Dutch have this saying about keeping our feet dry. And it's about kind of keeping the household of the nation state secure from the onslaught of this kind of natural um, um, threat. Now, one thing that's interesting is that this, the, the, these national histories then have these kind of more globalizing effects. So in the 1960s and 70s, Dutch hydrologists uh, start to kind of stage themselves as internationally relevant experts on thinking about coastal armoring um, and about wave prediction, which then gets very much bound up with questions of uh, international development and the discourses of development. So in the final chapter, I visit, um, I, I discuss work that's been done, particularly around the Bay of Bengal, um, which in the 1960s and 70s saw kind of an influx of Dutch originated hydrological expertise to build large scale coastal embankments 
and dikes and polders and all of that with what eventually turned out to be quite deleterious effects that really misrecognized a lot of the um, dynamics that were unfolding in the in the riverine deltas of um, of the Bay of Bengal. I'm drawing here particularly on the work of a very great anthropologist called Camelia Dewan in her book, Misreading the Bengal Delta, um, which is about kind of the misapprehension of watery dynamics in the Bay of Bengal as all about climate change, when in fact they're about many things other than simple sea level rise, the, the give and take of, of water with respect to different kinds of agricultural processes, et cetera. And so I guess part of what I'm interested in too, the, that final chapter is about uh, what Raywin Connell called Southern theory. And the question is, you know, what happens when these kind of wave theories from the North, from places like the Netherlands or places like the United States get transposed elsewhere? Well, it turns out they don't work that well because they overlook local um, kind of dynamics. But we want to go further than that as well and not simply say that the so-called global South is you know, simply a space of data that needs to be theorized, right? But we want to think about how um, these locations are also sites for doing theory itself, that what a wave is um, in the so-called global South might be something that is relevant elsewhere. So for example, one of the things that uh, recent oceanography has revealed is that waves in the Southern hemisphere, um, more generally, so zooming out a little bit here, um, have been getting taller in the last decade or so. And this is the result of uh, climate transformation and an increased uh, strength of storms and winds. And so in that sense, there's a sense in which the Southern ocean or the oceans of the South become a kind of harbinger of what's happening elsewhere. So the idea here is to kind of flip the, um, intuitions about who does theory for, for what and where with waves. And it's it's an interesting question to puzzle through, partially because, you know, wave scientists might say, some of them do, many of them don't. People obviously have very sophisticated visions of what they're up to. Um, you know, that waves are wa waves are objects that belong to physics and physics is universal. And so therefore any wave knowledge that, you know, can be formalized is likely to apply everywhere. It turns out that that's not really true. And one of the lessons there is that, of course, waves are not only about physics, <laughs> right? But they're also about um, geography, location. And more than that, especially in the so-called Anthropocene, they're about human enterprise and the, the, the return to our shores of the transformations caused by the so-called great acceleration, by the changes wrought by the emergence of plantation agriculture, captive labor, colonialism, all of those things get kind of um, materialized into the seascape in ways that are very uh, palpable. Thank you, Stefan. And I think for both of us, that sort of, yeah, the, the connection of the science of waves with theory originating from the South. I think this move to say, well, it's not just about developmentalist visions, right. but also maybe a critique that one could also leverage against the blue humanities more generally, mm -hmm. which has mm -hmm. tended to be fairly global North 
or at least Atlantic focused. Um, right. I want to ask a question about the blue humanities. Um, more generally, a field you've helped to pioneer, certainly in anthropology, but I think this is a cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary endeavor. You kind of, I think this is tongue-in-cheek, uh, propose that perhaps instead of the oceanic turn, we should think right. about the oceanic churn, derived, yes. of course, from waves. Can mm -hmm. you say a little bit more about that? Um, right. I think the oceanic turn has, I mean, the, the idea of the turn is an interesting one in social and literary theory more generally, right? So we think about the practice turn in anthropology or the um, the the linguistic turn in philosophy, things like that, which are, you know, an, a, a, a turning of attention to something that has been previously maybe neglected or you know, that we now understand as vital. So in anthropology, the turn to practice was a way of moving away from kind of very ideal, ideal typic visions of cultural ideology to sort of look at what happens in in everyday life. Um, but the turn also has this kind of strange, um, well, I guess it's also about futurity. It's about turning to what's next and trying to kind of do the project of inquiry better in some way. And so I think what I'm interested in with the notion of the oceanic churn is uh, the difficulty of actually knowing where the future is and the way that the ocean itself is a kind of heterochronic space that mixes various kinds of temporalities. So it's not, the ocean isn't only the future, which is uh, what some theorists have sort of argued. They've said, oh, the ocean is something like an avant-garde, like social forms get tried out in the kind of offshore um, oceanic space prior to being instantiated on land. You know, so what happens at sea becomes a kind of um, premonition of what might be next elsewhere. And certainly there's part of that with, with the argument of a book of waves that sea level rise in some places is, is a harbinger of what's coming ev everywhere. But it's also not as simple as that, right? It's not as linear as that. And so I think the idea of the oceanic churn is to point out that um, we, when we encounter the ocean and ocean waves and oceans, we're encountering lots of different layered temporalities um, that are not all about futurity. Sometimes there's a, or a lot of the time, it's about the haunting of, of the past, right? So, you know, I think, a good deal in the book with Black Studies scholar Christina Sharp and her notion of the wake and her argument about the Black Atlantic as being kind of a space of haunting and the wakes of ships being kinds of strange heterochronic reminders of the the terrible genocide of of the Middle Passage, right? And so the ocean becomes kind of the Atlantic Ocean, parts of the Atlantic Ocean become kind of a monument to Black Atlantic suffering and also resilience too. Um, or you can think of the radioactive nucleotides that are now circulating in many of the world's waters as a result of nuclear detonations in the Southern 
um, in the southwestern Pacific during the 1950s and 1960s, you know, these detonations by the United States, by France, by Australia, you know, have left these radioactive residues in the water that um, mean that we're still living in that time. We're living in that we're living in the 1950s and the 1960s. So the churn is to kind of point out all these different times in which we're living. Indeed. Uh, more on the ethnography, your book interlaces ethnographic chapters with diverse cultural, historical, and theoretical viewpoints and waves. How do mm -hmm. we intersect with mythology, uh, serf culture, feminist uh, theory, and other domains uh, as you present them in the book? Well, um, I mean, serf culture is an obvious one. Serf culture, of course, has a, a very complicated and interesting lineage beginning on most accounts in Hawaii as um, an enterprise that was engaged in by Hawaiians prior to the arrival of Captain Cook and that crowd, um, and then becomes kind of a globalized leisure industry in places like California and, and of course, Hawaii, South Africa, Australia. It becomes very much bound up with histories of coastal development, which then pretty quickly becomes involved with histories of race and racial segregation and the, the making of a certain kind of whiteness and white masculinity. And so what, what it means to surf or to be a surfer becomes part of a kind of set of identity formations that are extremely classed, extremely racialized, extremely gendered, and then obviously changed a lot. Um, not quite as much as one might imagine, but um, there's lots of contests around who counts as, um, you know, having local knowledge, et cetera. There's a a lot of really good work being done now on post-colonial and decolonial surfing in Hawaii that tries to kind of recapture uh, stories about um, about surfing in a much more indigenous kind of idiom. So that's that's one story, the surfing story. Um, folklore is an interesting one. I mentioned the genders of waves chapter, and that one really dives into sort of the gendering of ocean waves and, for example, early metaphors and Judeo-Christian ideas about uh, the sea where the ocean is understood to be a kind of chaotic remnant of Noah's flood and gets gendered as a kind of disorderly feminized flux um, that constantly needs to be kept at bay by, by pious believers. Um, you know, and, and then sometimes, of course, the, the water becomes celebrated as a site of, of vigorous challenge as well. Uh, Nietzsche has this amazing thing about, you know, the will to power being about becoming the wave. <laughs> um, so Nietzsche is another kind of figure of myth-making there. Um, so, and then what was the third one that you asked about so yes um it was uh, mythology and mm -hmm. feminist theory uh yes among them yeah i mean and certainly the idea of waves of feminism is one that um has now generated a pretty large cottage industry of people critiquing the metaphor of the wave of feminism you know for um misrecognizing the the kind of variety of, of women and women's experience um, by class, race, sexuality, um, gender identity, et cetera. 
Um, of course, the wave there in, in waves of feminism also has a kind of militarized kind of charge to it, like the wave of attack, right? Or the social front. And so people have also kind of gone after after that um, idiom, right? And, and you know, that not all women's movements march in lockstep. And again, we have kind of the idea of first, second, and third, now fourth wave feminism being very much keyed to a particular, in fact, very white European American kind of lineage where, you know, the first wave is the suffragettes and the second wave is women's liberation, 1960s. Third wave is women of color and queer feminism. And that sort of is, you know, a very neat story that could be kind of sloshed up a lot more. <laughs> The wave metaphor, you know, reveals some things for sure, but it also obscures things. So I'm I'm interested in that as well. But man, we wanted to ask you a little bit about computer memory and version mm. control in deciphering okay. waves on a global scale. How uh -huh. does this impact our capacity to analyze and interpret ocean oceanic data? I love this one line from I think this is one of the later chapters, and you mm. talk about this across chapters, but local knowledge would come to be stacked within large-scale cybernetic prognostication, an hmm. oracular book of waves written by AI. So can uh -huh. you tell us a little bit about this phase of, of um, deciphering and reading waves? Sure. Thank you for picking that out. And thank you for such a close reading of the book. I'm very moved by that. Um, yeah, so you're reading from a... Uh, yeah, the, the way that wave prediction operates these days is like so much else uh, threaded through computer modeling. And one of the things that I was able to do as part of this field work was to spend time um, at a wave modeling, a computer modeling of waves uh, summer school and try to get a sense of, you know, how, um, how scientists use computers to make models of the world wave system. And what's interesting about that is that the computer program is kind of a, a genealogy book in a way. It's a genealogy book of all of the authorized knowledge about waves that have has been, um, you know, found of, of utility in prediction. And of course, like any book, there's a lot of things that are left out. And so I guess I, I, I think I, I came to think of computer models of waves as a kind of um, archive of memory and of particular people's memory. I already referred to the work of Dutch and American oceanographers as kind of anchoring a lot of the kind of authorized wave knowledge with other kinds of knowledges only more recently brought in. I think um, when I was taking the summer school class at the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, and I guess or the National Weather Service. Um, it was a really interesting class because it was extremely international. People were very keen to kind of look at this model, which is used the world over, um, and try to adapt it to conditions that they were familiar with. And, you know, in many cases, they found it wanting. It didn't have the kind of wave memory that they themselves might have had. So I talked to a couple of people, for example, from Brazil, from Brazil who'd studied oceanography in Brazil and were just sort of fascinated by all the things that was not, were not, was not in the model, all the memories that they had 
um, of going to the beach, of encountering wave phenomena in places like Fortaleza, and um, wanting to to figure out how to bring those into this kind of model. And then I guess you mentioned version control as well. So version control is a, a process of trying to keep um, a computer program current and not get all confused about what the latest version is, right? And so version control is, I mean, we do this too when we write, you know, documents in, in word processing, like, is this draft number two or is this draft number seven? I forgot to label them, right? So you want to sort of know which versions are which. Um, so um, version control, not surprisingly, then, is a kind of political and social process of trying to kind of arrive at some kind of, I want to say consensus, but maybe that's maybe that's a bit too gleeful, um, some kind of, you know, settlement about what counts as authorized knowledge, where and when. I don't know if that speaks to 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 it a bit. And I, I guess the computer the computer story also, yes, does eventually these days, especially start to kind of bump up against um, recent um, transformations in artificial intelligence and machine learning so that wave prediction is now something that people are thinking about doing using machine learning systems and pattern recognition kinds of systems. And we can see we can imagine the kinds of um, challenges that that's going to pose, right? Because as with so much AI stuff, um, as witnessed the recent discussions about generative AI and Chat GPT, part of the part of the part of what happens is you get out of these programs versions of what has already been put in. And so, you know, the worst case scenario is a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy in which, you know, you make a wave prediction and it predicts it fine as far as you're concerned inside the kind of secure closed world of the computer program, but then doesn't work at all in the in the real world, right? Um, because you've left something out. So one of the stories that a Brazilian oceanographer told me was, again, some Dutch hydrologists had traveled to Brazil to try to help build a coastal um, coastal infrastructure, and it just kept getting flooded with sand. And eventually, the Brazilian oceanographers discovered that the the Dutch experts had left out an entire wave field that was relevant because they just didn't know about it, right? Um, so maybe that maybe that speaks a bit to the question you're asking. That's fascinating. Um, Tamara and I really enjoyed reading The End of Waves, and we found very ah, mm -hmm. useful insights that we would like to share uh, with the listeners. Um, wow. What pivotal takeaways you provide in The End of Waves, uh, and how does this section uh, accumulate the, the themes and discussions presented in your book? Right. How do waves end? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because waves, we understand waves as kind of going on and on sort of endlessly over and over. But of course, we also encounter waves at the shore where in some sense they end. And what happens when they end? Well, what happens when they end, when they crash or they, and they, you know, the energy is kind of delivered to the shore and, you know, perhaps produces erosion, produces sound, produces aerosolized gases, all of those things. Um, 
what happens at the shore is 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 various depending on where that happens and and these days so much of that is about um sea level rise and storm surge and the arrival into human built environments of um of watery seawatery forces that um challenge and sometimes undo you know the human construction projects and like which of course the next question is which humans where why when and a lot of that's going to be about uh, questions to do with class and residence patterns and so on but where i end the book is also to kind of i end the book um in where i live which is in massachusetts and I think a little bit about the uh, proposal of various coastal armoring projects that um, are in play that might build like a seawall around Boston. Um, and then these other kinds of projects that are meant to be more soft infrastructure that propose things like a network of marshes that could absorb uh, wave energy in a much more nonlinear and perhaps less destructive way. But I also pay attention to the deeper indigenous history of Massachusetts and the uh, displacement of various of the indigenous groups during the colonial period and, of course, still now, um, particularly with respect to the Boston Harbor Islands, which host um, a rather distressing history of native internment and genocide. And those stories are also stories that the waves are kind of lapping up against and reminding us of. And there are um, really quite disturbing legacies of um, burial and um, dispossession that, that the waves um, are also kind of um, grappling with or kind of yeah, that the that the waves are maybe unearthing, and all of those stories need to be told too. And that might be maybe a link back to the idea of the oceanic churn, that the temporality that is summoned by sea level rise is not only about the future, but it could also be about um, surfacing the so-called past. And you know, to use Christina Sharp again, the past that is not past, the the multiple chronotopes, the multiple kinds of worlds that um, that the ocean um, conveys. And I'm thinking here of the Barbasian poet Camus Brathwaite and his notion of tidalectics, which is a kind of rejoinder to the idea of dialectics. If, you know, dialectics is very neat kind of thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Tidalectics is an, is an attempt to talk about the kind of non-resolvability or the non-progressiveness of, of, um, of back and forths, right? So I guess the ends of waves, maybe I'm just saying that waves actually don't end, who knows? Um, maybe I'm saying that when waves end, new stories can begin or other stories become revealed or you realize that you're not actually at the end, but you're in the middle, something like that. Thank you. That's thoughtful and thought-provoking in the hope of not having the podcast also run on like a wave. Um, we wanted to ask 
by way of conclusion, Stefan, who are you hoping will read the book and what sort of impact would you like a book of waves to have in terms of broader conversations within anthropology, climate studies, um, across all of the different fields that the book intervenes in? Um, well, maybe you already answered the question in a certain way. I would like um, anthropologists and people in science studies and people in the in the blue humanities to 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 read it and to have a sense i guess one of the things i want to convey is you know the thing that any any anthropologist wants to do is you know some sense of the people who do the work who are the scientists what do they care about what motivates them what are the histories out of which their practice comes um what do they inherit that we um, that that they that they that they both know and that they don't know. Um, I also kind of want to flip perspectives a little bit on some of the um, received wisdom of the sciences, and and I guess you know to to demonstrate rather fully, I hope that science is culture, that that this is a culturally influential form of knowledge making, um, that and and that it is something with which a variety of interested publics can and should engage both to appreciate but also to critique where necessary and to um, make it serve aims that <laughs> just you know serve better aims than you know simply the extension and consolidation of existing structural and social inequality, right? There is a there is a brief chapter mention of the work of a really interesting human rights group called Forensic Oceanography, which very explicitly uses oceanographic knowledge to kind of surface human rights violations in today's Mediterranean. You know, it's that kind of stuff where you see the science kind of put to work and kind of queried both at the same time in the name of, of some kind of undoing of um, structural inequality of the tentacular forms of racial capitalism, um, things like that. That's a strange phrase to end on, but you know, there it is. That's very well put. And uh, A Book of Waves definitely carries with it a lot of uh, ideas and interventions that I recommend uh, to listeners who are interested, not just in anthropology, but also in history and literary studies and other disciplines that draw on uh, waves as a, as a physical uh, phenomena, a natural, but also as an intellectual. Thank you so much for sharing these insights. And before letting you go, we would like to know, uh, I know the book just came out and this wouldn't be fair, but we have to ask you, what are you working on these days or hope to work on in the future? I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> I mean, there's more waves to be written, right? There's it's sort of an endless, as you as you'll see from the book, the book is organized into five substantive ethnographic chapters, but there are 12 smaller chapters um, that take up waves in all these other domains from movies to music to poetry, etc. And I think what's next is writing more of those. <laughs> smaller things. And I don't know exactly what those will be. I'm kind of interested in the relationship between waves and cities. And that that might be um, 
something to to think further about. What about waves in Venice? What about waves in Lisbon? What about waves in New York? Um, that might be a, a way that this could go. Would that be a book of ripples? <laughs> Maybe it would be. I'll have to steal that if that, yeah. <laughs> Sounds that good. And we would love to have you again on the podcast. Thank you so much uh, for joining. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. And thank you for the listeners and for my co-host, uh, Tamara Fernando, for having this beautiful conversation. Uh, this is your uh, host, uh, Ahmed El-Mazmi. And today we explored uh, Stefan Helmerich's new book, A Book of Waves, published by Duke University Press in 2023. And this episode was uh, co-hosted uh, with my co-host, uh, Tamara Fernando. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World. 